Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Tonight on Drama on One, a special tribute to Neil Tobin, actor, comedian, mimic and raconteur, a maestro of the stage, the screen and the airwaves. Neil passed away last month at the age of 89. In this special programme, we'll hear some of his work as performer and storyteller. In March 2016, Neil introduced and performed the panegyric given by Porrick Pierce at the graveside of O'Donovan Rossa. This is the first time it has ever been broadcast. Some words can never be disavowed. As Seamus Heaney wrote, they have an undying tremor and draw like well water far down. In this performance, Neil went to the well one last time. Among the young men who in 1856 at Skibbereen, County Cork, founded the Phoenix Club, the moving spirit was Jeremiah O'Donovan. This club was the nucleus of the Fenian organisation. In the raid by British forces on the offices of the Fenian paper, The Irish People, in September 1865. O'Donovan was among the leaders arrested and later sentenced to long terms of penal servitude. In prison, he became well known to British officialdom by the dreaded name of O'Donovan Rossa, from the native place of his family. After his release in 1871, he settled in New York, where he engaged in politics and journalism. When he died there in June 1915, it was decided that the remains of this most typically Irish of all the Fenians should, like those of John O'Mahony, be brought home to Ireland and buried in Glasnevin. His funeral from Dublin City Hall to the cemetery was perhaps the most imposing ever seen in Dublin. When the coffin had been laid in the Republican plot, Pierce delivered his memorable oration. O'Donovan Rossa, Graveside Panegyric Aguela Erug Oram so Lord Tinuf, er son of Will Crinehe, er Lohisha, Agus, er son of Will Bow, the Clonagail, Agmola on Loan, a Lagomer, a Grey on Shah, Agus, a Grease, a Manamon, a Garde, a Tog, a Bronach, and a Yeg. A Harde no beach brown, a Rendine, a Tarn, a Hassav, a Gnoisha, Ach beach Buechus, a Ging, in our Grehe. The Yenung Rost, a Hrohig Anum Ursul, Alling, Yermudi Gunavine Russell, a Gazahug Ray Adado Erin Selsha. Bohalaman Farhu Yermud is Tame a Dartu Kacher Sonichart de Hine, a Gasni Bog Er Allingto, a Gasni Yenhig Gail Darud Ort Gabrach Nebrehe. Ach a chard an abiach brown oring, 
ach wirch mich noch in all Griehe, agus wirch nacht in all Grischli. Oor kynimisch nach mein ein Wasan, nach mein Asche erlein in jeg, agus garabassen uig scho, agus as nach uigene eta in all Dimpel, a eiroig sirsche Gwell. It has seemed right before we turn away from this place in which we have laid the mortal remains of O'Donovan Rossa, that one among us should, in the name of all, speak the praise of that valiant man and endeavour to formulate the thought and the hope that are in us as we stand around his grave. And if there is anything that makes it fitting that I, rather than some other, I, rather than one of the grey-haired men who were young with him, and shared in his labour and in his suffering, should speak here, it is perhaps that I may be taken as speaking on behalf of a new generation that has been re-baptised in the Fenian faith and that has accepted the responsibility of carrying out the Fenian programme. I propose to you then that here, by the grave of this unrepentant Fenian, we renew our baptismal vows, that here, by the grave of this unconquered and unconquerable man, we ask of God, each one for himself, such unshakable purpose, such high and gallant courage, such unbreakable strength of soul as belonged to O'Donovan Rossler. Deliberately here, we avow ourselves as he avowed himself in the dock, Irishmen of one allegiance only. We of the Irish volunteers, and you others who are associated with us in today's task and duty, are bound together and must stand together henceforth in brotherly union for the achievement of the freedom of Ireland. And we know only one definition of freedom. It is Tone's definition. It is Mitchell's definition. It is Ross's definition. Let no man blaspheme the cause that the dead generations of Ireland served by giving it any other name and definition than their name and their definition. We stand at Ross's grave, not in sadness, but rather in exaltation of spirit that it has been given to us to come thus into so close a communion with that brave and splendid girl. Splendid and holy causes are served by men who are themselves splendid and holy. O'Donovan oh, Rosser was splendid in the proud manhood of him, splendid in the heroic grace of him, splendid in the Gaelic strength and clarity and truth of him. And all that splendour and pride and strength was compatible with the humility 
and a simplicity of devotion to Ireland, to all that was old and beautiful and Gaelic in Ireland. The holiness and simplicity of patriotism, of a Michael O'Cleary or of an Owen O'Grawney. The clear, true eyes of this man, almost alone in his day, visioned Ireland as we of today would surely have her. Not free merely, but Gaelic as well. Not Gaelic merely, but free as well. In a closer spiritual communion with him now than ever before, or perhaps ever again. In a spiritual communion with those of his day, living and dead, who suffered with him in English prisons. In communion of spirit too with our own dear comrades who suffer in English prisons today, and speaking on their behalf as well as our own, we pledge to Ireland our love, and we pledge to English rule in Ireland our hate. This is a place of peace, sacred to the dead, where men should speak with all charity and with all restraint. But I hold it is a Christian thing, as O'Donovan Rossa held it, to hate evil, to hate untruth, to hate oppression, and hating them to strive to overthrow them. Our foes are strong and wise and wary, but strong and wise and wary as they are, they cannot undo the miracles of God who ripens in the hearts of young men the seed sown by the young men of a former generation, and the seed sown by the young men of sixty-five and sixty-seven are coming to their miraculous ripening today. Rulers and defenders of realms had need to be wary if they would guard against such processes. Life springs from death, and from the graves of patriot men and women spring living nations. The defenders of this realm have worked well in secret and in the open. They think that they have pacified Ireland. They think that they have purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. They think that they have foreseen everything, think they have provided against everything. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland, unfree, shall never be at peace. Neil Tobin performing Pierce's panegyric at the graveside of O'Donovan Rossa, recorded in March 2016 and broadcast tonight for the first time. Working in both Irish and English, Neil's career encompassed the Abbey Theatre, Radio Éireann and RTE Television, stand-up comedy nights from Tel Aviv to Reykjavik and groundbreaking films like Bob Quinn's Pochine. He won a Tony for his portrayal of Brendan Behan in Borstal Boy on Broadway. He played the Bull McCabe in Moscow. 
He was Slipper in the Irish RM, Father Frank McAnally in Bally Kiss Angel, amongst the countless other characters he created. But sometimes it was just Neil, a microphone and his razor-sharp wit. This is Recession from An Evening with Neil Tobin. Now, the country is at the moment in the throes of a recession. I mean, despite the things they did in the Dáil the other day, there is a recession. And um, it hits, um, it hits uh, the Dublin Corporation. At the end of the fiscal year, they found that they had really no money at all left to carry out any kind of a building programme, you see. But uh, they uh, felt that they should perhaps, you know, just to save face, advertise for something. They managed to scrape up £3,000. And they advertised for the smallest possible uh, public building they could think of, which was needless to say a public convenience. And uh, they only got three replies. They got one from uh, they got one from a Dublin builder. He was the first man in, and they said, uh, "What's your bid?" And he said, "Well, I tell you the truth, I wasn't going to bother." <laughs> but I tell you what I'll do. I know from the grapevine you have only three thousand pound, and I'll do it for the three thousand pound. And they said, "Well, what is the breakdown on the figures?" Well, he said, "It'd be a thousand pound for labour, it'd be a thousand pound materials, and it'd be a thousand pound profit." I think that's a fair offer. You know, you wouldn't get much better. They said, "All right, we'll let you know." So the second man was a cavern builder. And they said, and what's your bid? He said, oh, uh, £6,000. <laughs> and they said, and what's the breakdown in that? Well, he said, there'd be £2,000 profit for a start, and uh, I think it's 2000 is it, labour or material, something like that. Anyway, it's £6,000 round figure, and if I wish you would grab it, you know, like, because it's a very good offer. That'll be gone up tomorrow, everything's going up. If I wish you would grab it, all right, we'll let you know. So the third man in was a builder from here, McCall. And they said, and what's your bid? Whoa! <laughs> Nine thousand pounds. <laughs> and they said, and what's the breakdown in that? Uh, Three thousand for you. <laughs> Three thousand for me, and we give the job to the Dublin fella. <laughs> What I love about that story is that some people think it's a joke. <laughs> Let's keep them that way. Cheerio! From the album An Evening with Neil Tobin. Of course, Neil was also a gifted radio actor, conjuring whole worlds with his voice. Almost 20 years ago, he recorded The Ballad of Reading Jail by Oscar Wilde. The poem comes from the desolate final chapter of Wilde's biography when he was incarcerated in Reading Jail. The ballad tells of an execution in the jail, the hanging of Charles Thomas Woolridge, a trooper in the Royal Guards, convicted of murdering his wife. Our narrator, Neil Tobin. He did not wear his scarlet coat, for blood and wine are red, and blood and wine were on his hands when they found him with the dead, the poor dead woman whom he loved and murdered in her bed. 
He walked amongst the trial men in a suit of shabby grey. A cricket cap was on his head, and his step seemed light and gay. But I never saw a man who looked so wistfully at the day. I never saw a man who looked with such a wistful eye upon that little tent of blue which prisoners call the sky, and at every drifting cloud that went with sails of silver by. I walked with other souls in pain within another ring, and was wondering if the man had done a great or little thing, when a voice behind me whispered low, That fellow's got to swing. Dear Christ, the very prison walls suddenly seemed to reel, and the sky above my head became like a cask of scorching steel, and though I was a soul in pain, my pain I could not feel. I only knew what hunted thought quickened his step, and why he looked upon the garish day with such a wistful eye. The man had killed the thing he loved, and so he had to die. Yet each man kills the thing he loves. By each let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. Some kill their love when they are young, and some when they are old. Some strangle with the hands of lust, some with the hands of gold. The kindest use a knife, because the dead so soon grow cold. Some love too little, some too long, some sell and others buy. Some do the deed with many tears, and some without a sigh. For each man kills the thing he loves, yet each man does not die. He does not die a death of shame on a day of dark disgrace, nor have a noose about his neck, nor a cloth upon his face, nor drop feet foremost through the floor into an empty space. He does not sit with silent men who watch him night and day, who watch him when he tries to weep and when he tries to pray, who watch him lest himself should rob the prison of its prey. He does not wake at dawn to see dread figures throng his room, the shivering chaplain robed in white, the sheriff stern with gloom, and the governor all in shiny black with the yellow face of doom. He does not rise in piteous haste to put on convict clothes while some coarse-mouthed doctor gloats and notes each new and nerve-twitched pose, fingering a watch whose little ticks are like horrible hammer blows. He does not know that sickening thirst that sands one's throat before the hangman with his gardener's gloves slips through the padded door and binds one with three leathern thongs that the throat may thirst no more. He does not bend his head to hear the burial office read, nor while the terror of his soul tells him he is not dead, cross his own coffin as he moves into the hideous shed. For oak and elm have pleasant leaves that in the springtime shoot, but grim to see is the gallows tree with its adder-bitten root, and green or dry a man must die before it bears its fruit. The loftiest place is that seat of grace for which all worldlings try. But who would stand in hempen band upon a scaffold high and through a murderer's collar take his last look at the sky? 
It is sweet to dance to violins when love and life are fair. To dance to flutes, to dance to lutes is delicate and rare. But it is not sweet with nimble feet to dance upon the air. So with curious eyes and sick surmise we watched him day by day and wondered if each one of us would end the selfsame way. For none can tell to what red hell his sightless soul may stray. At last the dead man walked no more amongst the trial men. And I knew that he was standing up in the black dock's dreadful pen. And that never would I see his face in God's sweet world again. Like two doomed ships that pass in storm, we had crossed each other's way, but we made no sign, we said no word, we had no word to say, for we did not meet in the holy night, but in the shameful day. A prison wall was round us both, two outcast men we were. The world had thrust us from its heart, and God from out his care, and the iron gin that waits for sin had caught us in its snare. In debtor's yard the stones are hard, and the dripping wall is high. So it was there he took the air beneath the leaden sky, and by each side a warder walked, for fear the man might die. Or else he sat with those who watched his anguish night and day, who watched him when he rose to weep, and when he crouched to pray, who watched him lest himself should rob their scaffold of its prey. The governor was strong upon the Regulations Act. The doctor said that death was but a scientific fact. And twice a day the chaplain called and left a little tract. And twice a day he smoked his pipe and drank his quart of beer. His soul was resolute and held no hiding place for fear. He often said that he was glad the hangman's hands were near. But why he said so strange a thing no warder dared to ask. For he to whom a watcher's doom is given as his task must set a lock upon his lips and make his face a mask. Or else he might be moved and try to comfort or console. And what should human pity do pent up in murderer's hole? What word of grace in such a place could help a brother's soul? With slouch and swing around the ring we trod the fool's parade. We did not care. We knew we were the devil's own brigade. And shaven head and feet of lead make a merry masquerade. We tore the tarry rope to shreds with blunt and bleeding nails. We rubbed the doors and scrubbed the floors and cleaned the shining rails and rank by rank we soaped the plank and clattered with the pails. We sewed the sacks, we broke the stones, we turned the dusty drill, we banged the tins and bawled the hymns and sweated on the mill. But in the heart of every man, terror was lying still. So still it lay that every day crawled like a weed-clogged wave, and we forgot the bitter lot that waits for fool and knave. Till once, as we tramped in from work, we passed an open grave. With yawning mouth the yellow hole gaped for a living thing. The very mud cried out for blood to the thirsty asphalt ring. 
And we knew that ere one dawn grew fair, some prisoner had to swing. Right in we went with soul intent on death and dread and doom. The hangman with his little bag went shuffling through the gloom, and each man trembled as he crept into his numbered tomb. That night the empty corridors were full of forms of fear, and up and down the iron town stole feet we could not hear, and through the bars that hide the stars white faces seemed to peer. He lay as one who lies and dreams in a pleasant meadowland. The watchers watched him as he slept, and could not understand how one could sleep so sweet a sleep with a hangman close at hand. But there is no sleep when men must weep who never yet have wept. So we, the fool, the fraud, the knave, that endless vigil kept, and through each brain on hands of pain another's terror crept. Alas, it is a fearful thing to feel another's guilt, for right within the sword of sin pierced to its poisoned hilt, and as molten lead were the tears we shed for the blood we had not spilt. The warders with their shoes of felt crept by each padlocked door and peeped and saw with eyes of awe grey figures on the floor and wondered why men knelt to pray who never prayed before. All through the night we knelt and prayed, mad mourners of a course. The troubled plumes of midnight were the plumes upon a hearse and bitter wine upon a sponge was the savour of remorse. The grey cock crew, the red cock crew, but never came the day, and crooked shapes of terror crouched in the corners where we lay, and each evil sprite that walks by night before us seemed to play. They glided past, they glided fast, like travellers through a mist. They mocked the moon in a rigged dune of delicate turn and twist, and with formal pace and loathsome grace the phantoms kept their tryst. With mop and mow we saw them go, slim shadows hand in hand. About, about, in ghostly rout, they trod a saraband and the damned grotesques made arabesques like the wind upon the sand. With the pirouettes of marionettes they tripped on pointed tread, but with flutes of fear they filled the ear as the grisly mask they led. And loud they sang, and long they sang, for they sang to wake the dead. Oh, they cried, the world is wide, but fettered limbs go lame. And once or twice to throw the dice is a gentlemanly game, but he does not win who plays with sin in the secret house of shame. No things of air these antics were that frolicked with such glee to men whose lives were held in jives and whose feet might not go free. Our wounds of Christ, they were living things most terrible to see. Around, around, they waltzed and wound, some wheeled in smirking pairs with the mincing step of a demi-rep, some sidled up the stairs and with subtle sneer and fawning leer each helped us at our prayers. 
The morning wind began to moan, but still the night went on. Through its giant loom the web of gloom crept till each thread was spun, and as we prayed we grew afraid of the justice of the sun. The moaning wind went wandering round the weeping prison wall, till like a wheel of turning steel we felt the minutes crawl. O oh, moaning wind, what had we done to have such a seneschal? At last I saw the shadowed bars, like a lattice wrought in lead, move right across the whitewashed wall that faced my three-plank bed. And I knew that somewhere in the world God's dreadful dawn was red. At six o'clock we cleaned our cells. At seven all was still. But the softened swing of a mighty wing the prison seemed to fill, for the Lord of Death with icy breath had entered in to kill. He did not pass in purple pomp, nor ride a moon-white steed. Three yards of cord and a sliding board are all the gallows need. So with rope of shame the herald came to do the secret deed. We were as men who through a fen of filthy darkness grope. We did not dare to breathe a prayer or to give our anguish scope. Something was dead in each of us, and what was dead was hope. For man's grim justice goes its way and will not swerve aside. It slays the weak, it slays the strong, it has a deadly stride. With iron heel it slays the strong, the monstrous parricide. We waited for the stroke of eight. Each tongue was thick with thirst. For the stroke of eight is the stroke of fate that makes a man accursed. And fate will use a running noose for the best man and the worst. We had no other thing to do save to wait for the sign to come. So like things of stone in a valley lone, quiet we sat and dumb. But each man's heart beat thick and quick like a madman on a drum. With sudden shock the prison clock smote on the shivering air, and from all the jail rose up a wail of impotent despair, like the sound that frightened marshes here from some leper in his lair. And as one sees most dreadful things in the crystal of a dream, we saw the greasy hempen rope hooked to the blackened beam and heard the prayer the hangman's snare strangled into a scream and all the woe that moved him so that he gave that bitter cry and the wild regrets and the bloody sweats none knew so well as I. For he who lives more lives than one, more deaths than one must die. There is no chapel on the day on which they hang a man. The chaplain's heart is far too sick, or his face is far too wan, or there is that written in his eyes which none should look upon. So they kept us close till nigh on noon, and then they rang the bell, and the warders with their jingling keys opened each listening cell, and down the iron stair we tramped, each from his separate hell. Out into God's sweet air we went, but not in wonted way, for this man's face was white with fear, and that man's face was grey. And I never saw sad men who looked so wistfully at the day. 
I never saw sad men who looked with such a wistful eye upon that little tent of blue we prisoners called the sky, and at every careless cloud that passed in happy freedom by. But there were those amongst us all who walked with downcast head, and knew that had each got his due they should have died instead. He had but killed a thing that lived, whilst they had killed the dead. For he who sins a second time wakes a dead soul to pain, and draws it from its spotted shroud, and makes it bleed again, and makes it bleed great gouts of blood, and makes it bleed in vain. Like ape or clown in monstrous garb, with crooked arrows starred, Silently we went round and round the slippery asphalt yard. Silently we went round and round, and no man spoke a word. Silently we went round and round, and through each hollow mind the memory of dreadful things rushed like a dreadful wind, and horror stalked before each man, and terror crept behind. The warders strutted up and down and watched their herd of brutes, their uniforms were spick and span, and they wore their Sunday suits. But we knew the work they had been at by the quick lime on their boots. For where a grave had opened wide, there was no grave at all. Only a stretch of mud and sand by the hideous prison wall. And a little heap of burning lime, that the man should have his pall. For he has a pall, this wretched man, such as few men can claim, deep down below a prison yard, naked for greater shame, he lies with fetters on each foot, wrapped in a sheet of flame. And all the while the burning lime eats flesh and bone away, it eats the brittle bone by night and the soft flesh by day. It eats the flesh and bone by turns, but it eats the heart all way. For three long years they will not sow or root or seedling there. For three long years the unblessed spot will sterile be and bare and look upon the wandering sky with unreproachful stare. They think a murderer's heart would taint each simple seed they sow. It is not true. God's kindly earth is kindlier than men know, and the red rose would but blow more red, the white rose whiter blow. Out of his mouth a red, red rose, out of his heart a white. For who can say by what strange way Christ brings his will to light, since the barren staff the pilgrim bore bloomed in the great Pope's sight? Neither milk-white rose nor red may bloom in prison air. The shard, the pebble, and the flint are what they give us there. For flowers have been known to heal a common man's despair. So never will wine-red rose or white petal by petal fall on that stretch of mud and sand that lies by the hideous prison wall to tell the men who tramp the yard that God's son died for all. 
Yet, though the hideous prison wall still hems him round and round, and a spirit may not walk by night that is with fetters bound, and a spirit may but weep that lies in such unholy ground, he is at peace, this wretched man, at peace, or will be soon. There is no thing to make him mad, nor does terror walk at noon. For the lampless earth in which he lies has neither sun nor moon. They hanged him as a beast is hanged. They did not even toll a requiem that might have brought rest to his startled soul. But hurriedly they took him out and hid him in a hole. They stripped him of his canvas clothes and gave him to the flies. They mocked the swollen purple throat and the stark and staring eyes. And with laughter loud they heaped the shroud in which their convict lies. The chaplain would not kneel to pray by his dishonoured grave, nor mark it with that blessed cross that Christ for sinners gave, because the man was one of those whom Christ came down to save. Yet all is well. He has but passed to life's appointed burn, and alien tears will fill for him pity's long-broken urn. For his mourners will be outcast men, and outcasts always mourn. I know not whether laws be right or whether laws be wrong. All that we know who lie in jail is that the wall is strong, and that each day is like a year, a year whose days are long. But this I know, that every law that men have made for man since first man took his brother's life and the sad world began, but straws the wheat and saves the chaff with a most evil fan. This too I know, and why is it where if each could know the same, that every prison that men build is built with bricks of shame, and bound with bars, lest Christ should see how men their brothers maim. With bars they blur the gracious moon, and blind the goodly sun. And they do well to hide their hell, for in it things are done that son of God nor son of man ever should look upon. The vilest deeds, like poison weeds, bloom well in prison air. It is only what is good in man that wastes and withers there. Pale anguish keeps the heavy gate, and the warder is despair. For they starve the little frightened child till it weeps both night and day. And they scourge the weak and flog the fool and jibe the old and grey, and some grow mad and all grow bad, and none a word may say. Each narrow cell in which we dwell is a foul and dark latrine, and the fetid breath of living death chokes up each grated screen, and all but lust is turned to dust in humanity's machine. The brackish water that we drink creeps with a loathsome slime, and the bitter bread they weigh in scales is full of chalk and lime, and sleep will not lie down, but walks wild-eyed and cries to time. 
But though lean hunger and green thirst, like asp with adder fight, we have little care of prison fare, for what chills and kills outright is that every stone one lifts by day becomes one's heart by night. With midnight always in one's heart and twilight in one's cell, we turn the crank or tear the rope, each in its separate hell, and the silence is more awful far than the sound of a brazen bell. And never a human voice comes near to speak a gentle word, and the eye that watches through the door is pitiless and hard, and by all forgot we rot and rot, with soul and body marred, and thus we rust life's iron chain, degraded and alone. And some men curse and some men weep, and some men make no moan, but God's eternal laws are kind and break the heart of stone. And every human heart that breaks in prison cell or yard is as that broken box that gave its treasure to the Lord and filled the unclean leper's house with the scent of costliest nard. Ah, happy they whose hearts can break and peace of pardon win. How else may man make straight his plan and cleanse his soul from sin? How else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in? And he of the swollen purple throat and the stark and staring eyes waits for the holy hands that took the thief to paradise. And a broken and a contrite heart the Lord will not despise. The man in red who reads the law gave him three weeks of life, three little weeks in which to heal his soul of his soul's strife and cleanse from every blot of blood the hand that held the knife. And with tears of blood he cleansed the hand, the hand that held the steel, for only blood can wipe out blood and only tears can heal. And the crimson stain that was of Cain became Christ's snow-white seal. In Reading Jail by Reading Town there is a pit of shame, and in it lies a wretched man eaten by teeth of flame. In a burning winding sheet he lies, and his grave has got no name. And there, till Christ call forth the dead, in silence let him lie. No need to waste the foolish tear or heave the windy sigh. The man had killed the thing he loved, and so he had to die. And all men kill the thing they love, by all let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword.
Neil Tobin performing The Ballad of Reading Jail by Oscar Wilde in a radio version produced by Kate Minogue. Neil had a great ear for the motley noises of the Irish conversation. He even contributed to a radio documentary devoted to the Cork accent, tracing the geography of the city with his voice. Well, on the night of God broke loose in Grand Parade, all the people of Cork City got afraid. And Candyke and Catty Barry took a side carol to Blarney, and the night the good broke loose on Grand Parade. Well, no, to tell you the truth, I you, I'd be in a bit of a pickle because um, what I'm speaking now is more or less the kind of accent of all my neighbours when I was uh, a young fellow. Like, to be more or less that, I suppose to be the Blackpool area, and that you know. Uh, however, in later life, like, uh, I met people who tended to talk a bit better, you know, and, uh, or they thought they, they, they spoke better anyway. They didn't always say thought either. They mostly said they thought that they spoke better. But then you have, uh, like, uh, there are other people that talk so fast, like, you wouldn't be able to look at what they're talking about, like, you know? And um, so that really, you know, people said there were nine or ten different Cork accents. I don't know. I can only usually, if I want to use some kind of Cork accent, I think of a person who spoke like this and then I, I use it. A, a real Cork accent will always raise a smile. This may be sometimes a smile of amusement or of affection or so on, or sometimes a wry smile of mockery. But. At the same time, I think that anything that starts off by causing people to smile or chuckle is a great asset. I mean, at least when people say, you know, we don't have to ask where you're from, you know, or when they start calling you, how are you cocky before you... There's some little... You see, you've broken, you've broken through a barrier that others have to break through in a far more formal way. But there's also the yarn which demonstrates the razor-sharp quality of cork wit. Enhanced, of course, by the richness of the accent. Like this story of Johnny Vaughan, a famous soccer player in Cork Longo. I remember being at a cup final in Dalymount and, and Vaughan, Johnny Vaughan was, was on, the, on the right wing and he had a, a great habit of looking for the long through ball sent out to the wing and he would, he would be on his bike and right up to the corner flag and he would cross the ball because he was very, very quick. This happened a couple of times, and, and once or twice he didn't make it, and once everybody crossed it, but there were two fellas on those and there was a great run on there. Look at that, just the speed, look at the speed of that. <laughs> yeah, for God's sake, you have only one leg. You have only one leg, one, you have only one leg, look, you have only the right leg, look, look at that, look, look, what they tell you, look, one, only one leg. So then Vaughan, um, he moved in, I think, and he, he took a pass and <laughs> he hit it with the right leg and bang, it hit the, the crossbar, you know, it was very nearly a goal and there was wild excitement. And he said, well, what about that, you see? He said, what do you think of that? Yeah, for God's sake, he said, what was he doing with the other leg? He was fucking standing on it. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Tobin there, connoisseur of accents. And to end, one more memento of Neil, a poem by Derek Mahan entitled Everything is Going to Be All Right. How should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dormer window and a high tide reflected on the ceiling? 
There will be dying, there will be dying, but there is no need to go into that. The poems flow from the hand unbidden, and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the day break and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right. Derek Mahan's poem, Everything is Going to Be All Right, read by the subject of tonight's special tribute, Neil Tobin, actor, comedian, mimic and raconteur, Kirkyuk Gusmir Agusgail Dan Scott, Eryeshde Gorev A Anam. If you'd like to listen back to the programme, take a look at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. And the programme was produced by Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Brew.